Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Today, we're lucky to have Lowell Rickliffs. Lowell is the managing partner of Traction, a boutique M&A advisor. Lowell, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Yeah, so Lowell, uh, tell us about your experience in this space, what Traction does, and kind of how you approach, uh, how you approach this issue when... when uh, and maybe to frame it for the audience, um, you, know, you, you help companies who are trying to get to uh, liquidity events, uh, and, and you're focused primarily in the, uh, in the software arena, but let's talk about that too. But uh, yeah, tell us about Traction. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, the short story is I'm, I'm focused on small software companies, revenue between 1 and 10 million, enterprise value 5 to 50 million, primarily in the Pacific Northwest, uh, kind of specialized in online marketing, market research, and the manufacturing automation, which may sound a little bit odd, but I can give a little bit of background. And I, I, I got into this in kind of a unique way. Um, my background as a developer in middle school, as computer science, electrical engineering in college, and worked for a startup, got involved on the sales side while I was in school, went to work for Rockwell and chose the technical sales side. So I had a sales career um, over 15 years and, and actually uh, in the end, ran global sales, and then I managed the business sales, business uh, software, business manager for the software. And uh, when I was responsible for channels, I actually sat next to our, our corp dev guy for Rockwell, Fortune 500 companies, when they were doing acquisitions. Uh, when I left Rockwell, I went to work for GMI, uh, online market research data collection, and we helped to scale that company from... Uh, about a million to 50 million. Um, it was acquired by WPP, and we did several acquisitions while I was there. <clears throat> uh, went to Toluna, actually lived in Europe for a few years, and um, helped scale that company from about 10 million to 120 million. Uh, they were actually publicly traded, uh, and I was a COO and, and did a, a, a couple of significant acquisitions there. In fact, one of the companies we actually bought from Microsoft, and then that company was sold to a private equity firm. Uh, moved back to the U.S. Um, and actually joined a Techstars company uh, as a CEO with two other founders. And we worked for five years to build the industry leader, um, healthcare IT company. And then when it came time to sell a company, we were, we were small. Um, you know, we weren't a home run. We were more of a single. I like to use the baseball analogy. Um, you know, about 25% of Major League Baseball hitters um, get a hit of some kind when they're at the plate. But only about 2 or 3% are home runs. And I think it's true with startups. Uh, you see a lot of press about the two or three percent that are home runs. You know, and I define a home run as a hundred million enterprise value or more. Uh, but 25 percent of those, <clears throat> or for every one of those, there are 10 to 15 other companies. That is a it's a good business. It's a real product. It solves a real problem. People will pay for it, and they will continue to pay for it. So it's sticky. These are good businesses, uh, but oftentimes they have um, a linear growth path. They don't have that exponential. Um, you know, founder fatigue becomes an issue sometimes, you know, five, seven, ten years in. Um, and, and investors want a liquidity event as well. And so these are, these are good businesses uh, that, that actually have a, a, often have a, as a part of a larger organization, can find scale much more quickly. One of the examples I actually like to use is Amazon <clears throat> wanted to get into the voice-to-text and text-to-voice business, and they didn't have the skill set inside. Uh, in parallel, there was a small company in Poland that was struggling with text-to-voice, voice-to-text. Um, you know, they didn't have a big marketing budget. They didn't have a big sales team. So typical of, of hundreds of startups you see um, in the Pacific Northwest. 
And they found each other, and you know, Alexa was born from that marriage with with Amazon, and now it's a you know multi-billion-dollar business with thousands of engineers on it. And so, they never could have reached that scale on their own, and Amazon likely could not have created that on their own as well. So, so back to uh, when I was at Flexminder, um, I had a sales background. I'd seen how the acquisition side works in multiple-sized companies, and uh, so we decided to, to to run the process myself and sell the company. And then I helped one of our investors run the process uh, for another company <clears throat> and realized that there was a, <clears throat> a, a shortage of people willing to help. Uh, I call them, the, you know, the singles, doubles and triples uh, find a home. You know, they're more focused on some of the larger transactions. Uh, a lot of the investment banks are or their or their their minimum fees are quite high. So so that's where Traction was was born. I, I saw an, an unmet need. I saw a lot of very talented CEOs, um, I could relate to how hard they'd work to, to bring an idea to life. Um, I, I can respect how hard it is to raise money. Um, I do some angel investing as well, so I also understand from the angel investor perspective the desire for a liquidity event. You know, if you're five, seven years into it, you kind of know what you're going to have. And, and so I actually enjoy uh, both sides, working with the sellers to find the right buyer and negotiate the um, the right deal for both sides and get maximum value uh, for the sellers. And I, I relatively small, you know, we work with um, a, a couple transactions per year, um, very high touch. And um, that's, that's how we got here. So yeah. I'm, I'm curious about, uh, so you've been in inside companies that do acquisitions. Uh, that's a, that's a perspective that a lot of startup founders don't really have. What is that? What does that look like? I mean, are are companies that have an M and A department are they, uh, you know, actively looking for companies to buy, or is it is it mostly driven by specific needs within the company, or does, maybe it varies by company to company? Like, what what does that culture look like inside the company when it comes to trying to identify things they want to buy, and how how's how's that driven? Does it ever come about by, um, you know, I I, I try to think about what I would do in a position of trying to sell my company, and you'd think, well, maybe you should reach out and try to make take meetings with people that might have synergies with you or might, might be interested in buying you. How often do acquisitions come out of that path? How often do they come from situations like the Alexa one where, where you mentioned that, you know, maybe they have a specific need for a particular piece of technology? Like, I, I don't know. How, how, does that, how does that usually look? Yeah, there, there's a mix of both. And it's kind of like a, an imperfect marketplace. You've got uh, companies with technology that want to sell and it's, it's difficult for them to get exposure to all of the potential companies that could leverage that technology. And and that's 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 kind of the part that um, that I work on. It's almost like like Match.com for startups. Um, and yeah, so you know there are four thousand publicly traded companies in the world, approximately. And most companies I know and have ever been a part of and, uh, or worked with struggle to hit their top line revenue and earnings growth numbers. So as a part of that, typically they can they can get halfway there organically. And they, in some portion of their growth, they, they plan to meet that with bolt-on acquisitions. So they staff up a, a corp dev, you know, corporate development group. And that's their job is to go out and, and scour for uh, companies. It, it might be a product. It might be an adjacent space. So if you call on all uh, SMBs with your product, you've got 10 customers. Uh, another company that focuses on SMBs, and they've got 10,000 customers, they might be able to take your product and give it to their existing sales and marketing team, and they could expose it to all of those customers and, and scale it very, very quickly. Um, but the, 
So part of the key is to understand what is the strategy, what are the strategic priorities of the companies that have M&A groups. So it's really a matter of, it's less of telling them what you have for them, it's, it's asking the questions, you know, what are your strategic priorities for the year? If a company that you're working with is, is aligned with their strategic priorities, it, it's a good place to start. If, if it's out of whack or out of alignment, it's, it's probably not worth wasting the time. But Corp Dev really runs the process. They're facilitators. They don't own the budget. The, um, the product groups typically own the budget. So it's important to, to work with the product leaders as well. So the VP product, SVP product, sometimes it's the CTO, sometimes it's the CFO. Uh, but to understand what their challenges are, like, like you know, Amazon is a great example. You know, what, what are the challenges that they've got? What are they trying to accomplish? And then what companies... Uh, might be able to fit that bill. So with, with engineers, it's, um, it's more understanding what their, their product strategy is, and it requires a high level of, of kind of trust and credibility before they'll, they'll share that with you. So um, yeah, so part of it's getting access, and part of it's having the right story and the right message that resonates with them. And one of the things I think I do that's a little bit different is rather than, I think it's important, and I, and I coach a lot, I, I do a lot of mentoring as well. So I do, I do more coaching than actually representing, is... <clears throat> The, the message is critical uh, to get it right. Like what, what, how does your solution help their company uh, be more successful? Like I, I often say, you know, companies, potential acquirers, they don't care about me. They don't care about you. They don't care about your product, really. They care about their problems and their life and solving their problems. So the extent that you can do research, um, you know, Google's a great, re- great resource to understand what are the challenges that the company has? Uh, if they're publicly traded, is there an annual report? What does the CEO talk about? Like, what's his strategy? How does, how does what you do uh, blend into helping that company be successful, trying to do what they're trying to accomplish? So if you can talk about how you can help them accomplish their goals, then they'll start to want to dig deeper, understand what your product does, who you are, how it fits, and, and how the combined entity would help them be successful. Yeah, that's not terrible advice for all kinds of things. I mean, it seems like uh, often, often, you know, even like pitching investors uh, across the board, it seems like a lot of people trying to sell other people on something don't always put themselves in the other person's shoes the way they, they maybe they should. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's human nature. And um, I, it, it's easy when you're not in the weeds with a business to sit down with someone on a whiteboard and kind of craft out. You say, well, what do you guys do? And they'll talk about what well, we have, you know, great technology. It does X, Y, Z, and then it does X, Y, Z, and it improves efficiency. So yeah, oh, but who cares? Like, so what? Well, well, of course they love it. I said, but, but why? Why do they? Well, well, because they can, they can make decisions faster. I say, okay, well, who cares? Well, but then it makes them more competitive and they make more money. So, you know, so you have to break it down to those last things that they care about. It makes them more competitive. It's, you know, better, cheaper, faster. Um, mm. But even when I'm in the weeds, I know building a company, it's, it's hard to see that bigger picture when you're in the guts of, of, um, of trying to make it work. But yes, messaging is everything. I say every word counts. You know, in an email, the subject line matters. You know, think about how quickly we all filter email and we click the delete button, right? When you see you've got 38 emails, your goal is to eliminate all of those. And you, you very quickly trigger, you know, is this BS or is this valuable? So that, that um, uh, the, the, the subject line has to relate to their problem, their pain so that they'll actually, you can buy more of their time and they'll read a little bit more. Same thing if you, if you call them um, and you get on the phone, you know, you've got about five or 10 seconds to connect with something that, um, that's meaningful to them. And so it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of, uh, I do a lot of research, which I, I kind of enjoy. It's, it's interesting to find out what, what companies are trying to accomplish. 
Um, and then it's like a puzzle. And then how does this, this fit together, you know, into their strategy? What, what advice do you have when you start working with a new company? Let's say they're a young company, they're building something they're, they're maybe they're just starting to cross that threshold you mentioned about maybe they've, they're just breaking a million dollars in revenue and they're starting to think about what their options are. Maybe they're not the kind of exponential growth company, like you said, that's likely to go public or, or, um, you know, kind of accelerate into that next, next thing. Um, you know, what, what do they, what, what does that roadmap look like for them to try to plan for a potential sale? Well, I think, um, so two things. One, I'll even, I'll even back up a little bit. I think one of the things companies should do from the start is uh, they should keep an organized data room. Um, people don't, you know, when you've got a napkin, you're getting things started, but, but make sure you've got um, IP assignment right contracts, fully executed, signed where you can find them, you know, and um, non-compete agreements. Those are important when you're closing. They don't feel important in the early years, but they can come back to haunt you uh, during a close. The other thing I would say, <clears throat> almost from, from the beginning, and certainly when we're at the threshold that, that, that you're talking about, Mike, is uh, I think about who might buy you and, and try to get to know them. If you, if you attend conferences, look at the attendee list. If the, if the CEO or, or corp dev or VP of engineering of companies that you think will buy you are there, Reach out to them, you know, meet them for coffee, say hello, talk. You don't have to sell the company. You don't have to say you're for sale. Just talk about, you know, do some research on the company and, and talk about um, how you think you would like to work together. If you can, awareness is, is key so they know who you are. Interest is even better so that they, they might want to work with you. If they want to work with you, they may want, they may want to buy you. And then if they are a customer, being acquired is um, analogous to getting married. Um, you have to date for a while first. If the dating starts when you're running a process to sell the company, it's it's almost like speed dating. They're trying to get you know to get to know you fairly quickly. But if you are are, are working with a company, and it might be at the lower levels, you know, it might be at the at the product manager level. But if you're working with a company, then when you when you run a process, if you engage um, an M and A advisor, you know, you know, I'll typically go in at the CEO level uh, or the corporate development or SVP level. At that level, when they when they reach down into the company, we can talk about you know you actually use us today for X, Y, and Z in these projects. When they reach out to those people, uh, an internal reference is extremely valuable. Um, it's it's hard to replicate actually. Otherwise, they're going to kind of have to do a proof of concept. Uh, there was a um, a, a uh, company that I know recently that was working with another company. The company wanted to acquire, there were two companies that wanted to acquire them, and one of them um, wanted to run kind of a six-month pilot, and then they were actually even willing to pay more, but due to timing, um, they chose to go with, with the other company. But unfortunately, had, had they already been working with them, we may have had two bidders or an additional bidder in the process, um, which uh, is one of the things that's really key as well. You'll get the most value if you've got two or more bidders in the process. If you've got one, it doesn't give you a lot of negotiating leverage. If you've got two or more, and particularly if those two are competitors, it gives you a lot of leverage because then the, the conversation switches from why I might want these people and why it might be interesting. And they're always thinking, let's be honest, on the, on the acquirer side, you're trying to buy these things as cheaply as you can. You're trying to negotiate the price down. But if there are two or more, and it's a hated competitor that, that might buy you, the, the conversation quickly switches to, oh, we can't lose this to them. You know, all of a sudden, the conversation, and literally, I've had these conversations internally. Also, it's like, well, how far can we go? Like, how, like what's our breaking point? Um, 
Uh, one company, I'll leave it unnamed, that I was a part of, you know, I know that the, the bid started at, at $40 million, and due to competition in the end, the company sold for $110 million. So that's $70 million purely because companies were trying to understand how, much, how far they could stretch justification so that they didn't lose that key asset to a competitor. Interesting. So, but, sorry, Mike. Let me come back to your question. So, if you're at if you're at a million, you cross that threshold. I think it's wise to sit down with an M and A advisor. Um, I I have a lot of meetings, a lot of coffee with people. I'm happy to coach people for years and talk about and, and do, do a whiteboard session and talk about who who might be the acquirers. Um, actually, this weekend I worked with a company. I went through and um, I did some research and I came up with um, 62 potential acquirers. Uh, I'd say 50 percent, 60 percent of those were companies that. Uh, the company hadn't really thought of before. It was food for thought. And I throw that out there. I do some research. Uh, they do some research and, and we might add a few and might whittle it down. But it's good food for thought to, to understand them as well as you can. And then to the extent that you can, try to develop a relationship with them um, even better. Try to, try to make them a customer while making sure that your back office is in order. Right. Well, this is great advice, Lowell. So uh, let's talk about the coaching thing so um you just what what sort of um you know how, how does that process look from a from a client's point of view like how does it you typically start just start, starts with somebody a ceo of a, a company reaching out to you they've reached some 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 thresholds that make them think they should start looking forward and then um you basically just enter into a, a coaching relationship with them for some period of time until they're even further along and ready to maybe execute a transaction yeah, yeah. I, I get, you know, through LinkedIn and through email, um, you know, I, I probably get a couple requests per week uh, to meet for coffee. And um, I get to know the person. And if it's a, it's a good fit personality wise, which I encourage people to find an advisor that there's a good fit because this process is very stressful. And, and, and you want someone that you really trust and you trust their judgment because you'll have um, dozens, if not hundreds of, of judgment calls to make as you, you know, create the LOI and then uh, you know, the term sheet and then the, uh, the actual purchase agreement, as, Joe, as you know well. Um, so, yeah, I just, just reach out and <clears throat> happy to meet people for coffee. I'm actually a mentor down at Galvanize, which is a, it's a nice place to meet. Um, you know, usually an hour, an hour and a half on a whiteboard, kind of sketch out the business and where they are, where they want to go. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll coach people, you've done a great job, you know, you're at a million, but your forecast is three million. If you can get even two million next year, your company will be far more valuable uh, than it is today. Um, yeah, I'll meet with people periodically. <clears throat> One of the companies um, I worked with recently, I'd, I'd actually known them, <clears throat> excuse me, a little cold, had known them for a couple of years and we would just meet for coffee. And sometimes if I know the interest, industry, I'm happy to make introductions <clears throat> to help them be successful on the sales side as well. Sorry, let me grab some water. Yeah, so that's one thing that you mentioned that I think is really fascinating is you, um, you helped identify 62 potential acquirers for a, a company that you were working with a little bit. <laughs> Tell us about how you, uh, how, you, how you did that research. Sure. Um, I use <clears throat> some of the industry data sources. So, um, you know, PitchBook is a, is a good platform. And I'll, I'll go, you know, I'll, di- I'll dig into the, um, most industries will have industry publications. And so I'll scan through uh, recent acquisitions, who's been acquisitive in the past, um, and I'll just do a lot of hardcore, heavy-duty online 
research into the different industries, who the different industry players are. I'll come through LinkedIn uh, to find out who some of the key executives are, understand employee accounts, um, you know, uh, D&B to understand the size of the company, revenue. Um, are they large enough to potentially do an acquisition? Do they have a corp dev function? And are they acquisitive in general? Sometimes companies may look like a good fit, but if they've never done an acquisition before, um, it's, it's less likely that, that you'll be the first. It's not impossible. Um, you know, the company I was a part of, uh, FlexMiner, you know, we sold it to a company that had never done an acquisition before. So it was their first time through it, a little bit more complicated, but, but we were successful there as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. So the um, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're seeing in the in the marketplace as a whole. Like how are how are uh, how is the only market right now? I mean, is it pretty healthy? Do you see a good year here? A lot of acquisitions. I mean, how, how do you see the landscape sh shaping? Yeah, I think it's pretty strong right now. The economy is strong. Um, uh, strategic acquirers have cash. Actually, private equity firms have cash. They're typically focused on larger deals. But there's a lot of money out there right now. So it's, it's, it's pretty robust. People are feeling pretty good. And people are pretty anxious um, to buy. I mean, if it's, if it's the right fit, people are, are, are pretty anxious to buy. So it's, it's definitely a good time right now. Right. Yeah, what, what kind right. of companies so, jump out as, as uh, you know, so you meet with folks, right? And you have to kind of assess whether they might be a good client, whether they might have technology or a company that's going to be, you know, easier, or hard to find an acquirer for. Like, what do you see in the market right now? What, what types of, of companies are getting snapped up quicker than others? And I don't know it, if somebody were starting a company and they had a lot of different options, you know, what type of options would be the best ones, you know, that would at least at this point in time lead to easier likelihood of being acquired? Sure. So, you know, my, my focus is primarily, I think, exclusively on, on, on SaaS companies. So recurring model SaaS companies, uh, sometimes um, on-premise, if uh, you know, depending on, on the application. <clears throat> but the areas that are hot right now, you know, no surprise, are you know, artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. So if you've got, if you've got that, particularly for smaller companies, <clears throat> the skill set of the employees uh, may be as or more important than the actual product itself. So if you have an element of um, of legitimate AI and machine learning talent. And demonstrated technology in your company, uh, those those are pretty hot. That that's probably number one right now. Um, maybe, maybe blockchain in the future for some people, but I, I I don't I know enough about blockchain to be dangerous. Yeah, the AI yeah. talent is, is tight right now. I can I it can is. see why that would probably be a hot area for Aquahire. Um, you know, just to get those folks in 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 your building. Yeah, because the the larger um, some of the some of the larger companies who are very successful in a space that, that, that haven't innovated or evolved significantly, um, you know, in the recent, because they just haven't had to, uh, they're not great at attracting some of the best and brightest, um, because some of the best and brightest are excited about, you know, cool new stuff. And so they're, they, they, they sometimes gravitate towards, towards startups. So it, it, it's often a good fit for both sides where a team uh, so the people that like kind of the exciting new stuff are a part of a team and then larger companies can go out if they can't, if they struggle to hire those people independently, they, they can hire a functioning team and, and bring it in that way. Yeah, that's one thing I think that a lot of, um, I don't know, it's a pretty exciting, I mean, if you're building something, uh, you know, in this space, um, 
a SaaS company, um, you know, it strikes me that um, you just really, really, really improve your likelihood of a, of a good of a good outcome if you start thinking along the lines you've described here to us. Uh, you know, early early is going to be much better than later. Um, so you can plant those seeds across a bunch of different uh, places in your industry, and hopefully, you get to a point where you have a, com- a competitive bidding situation when you ultimately decide to sell the company. Yeah, I think a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of, and I don't. I mean, maybe this is a generalization. It seems like a lot of companies um, don't really don't really do a lot of this forward thinking uh, as well as they probably should. I think you're right. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's. <clears throat> it's a double-edged sword. You don't. I think it's important that you know early on that your your exclusive focus is only on on how do we exit. But I do think it it should be one of you know as a CEO you you spin a lot of plates. But it should be one of the plates that you spin is you should carve out some time, um, if not each week, each month to think about you know put everything else aside and think about who might who might buy us and why and and how can I best position ourselves. Not necessarily to the detriment of other things that you might do that, to help your, your business be successful, but, but at least give some thought and, and some action towards how do we best align ourselves. And part of it is the relationships. Part of it is the partnering, and some of it, some of it might be the, the product side as well. But, it, but you're right. It, it, I am, I'm surprised, but also sometimes impressed. Some companies who have operated for a long, long time, and they're just heads down, building the business, building the best possible product that they can. And they take a lot of pride in that. And I have a lot of respect for that. And then sometimes they raise their head and they say, you know, I, I've, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's a good time to sell my company, but I've, but I've, I've never given any thought before. So I, and they don't even know where to start. Um, and sometimes I don't want to overgeneralize, but sometimes I find that particularly if it's product and development people, uh, they don't have a sales background and selling your company is a sales process. If if there is if one of the founders has a sales background, a marketing background, they they're more likely to have thought that through just because that's what what they're focused on often at work is selling and and, and they give some thought to selling the company as well. But yes, it's very common that a lot of companies really haven't given it much thought, um, and and most many people only go through this process once, and there's a lot to the process, a lot more than what most people think, um, and. You, yeah, you, you, because you've put so much work into building a company, you want to be really, and you're only going to sell that company once, and you may only sell one company in your lifetime. You, you really want to make sure that you, you do it right and, and treat that process. That um, you put a lot of time and energy into it, and even with an advisor, it will take take up a significant amount of your time and your energy while you run through the process, and a, the process can take six to twelve months um, to do it right get the, the, the proper exposure to all the potential buyers and then allow them to digest it and work through all the different conversations and then due diligence um, and then internal justification because there's a, a process to understand your company and why they might buy it and how much is it worth. But then internally, there's a justification process. You know, every company, uh, you know, the CFO has a budget. Uh, every company has a board. Uh, sometimes if they're private equity owned, you know, the private equity owners have to have to agree. So they're Understanding how you can help help them be successful on their side um, is important as well, and that's one of the areas I, I yeah, I, I can actually help. I've, I've been there. I know what that life looks like, and so I, I try to understand each step and what 
what they need to, to kind of cross that next hurdle internally. Great. How can people find out more about traction and hear, hear more about your practice? Yeah. Uh, feel free to, uh, you know, shoot me an email. It's, it's Lowell at tractionadvising.com. Uh, you can visit my website, www.tractionadvising.com. And, um, I'd be happy to chat. This is fun for me. And like I say, I've got a lot of respect for how much effort people put into building a business and it's fun to get to know them, learn about their journey and, and help them, uh, generate some wealth for themselves and their, their investors. That's great. Well, th- thanks for well, taking the time great. to share it with us. Yeah. Yeah. Lowell, it's been a really, really helpful talk. I'm sure people who hear this will find it really helpful. So we really appreciate being on the show. Thanks guys. I appreciate being here. And the last plug I'll throw in there is, is you want to pick a good attorney because at some point your attorney will be working with the buyer's attorney. And that's arguably one of the most important decisions that you'll make is that you've got someone solid there. So, and yeah, appreciate the plug. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's definitely the case that there's, um, and there's just some legal, there's some legal um, things, you know, in the process that if you if you work with somebody who's done a lot of it before, they know it. They know what's coming up, right? They can they can get you warned in advance and get you, yep. uh, you know, get you in the right state of mind and know when to negotiate, know when to negotiate certain things and and uh, and the timing, blah blah blah. Anyway, we can maybe have you on the show again. We can talk about that at a different time. <laughs> okay, thanks guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely, and thanks everyone else. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week.